Thank you, Fred. Let's pray as we begin. Light from light, light of the world, we simply ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see in your light. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in C.S. Lewis's wonderful children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he tells the story, uh, the story of Narnia, a country under a curse. An evil witch has placed a spell on the land so that it's always winter and never Christmas. The country is dark and bleak, and there seems to be no hope for the future. That is, until word gets out that Aslan is on the move. He's coming to set things straight. He's coming to destroy the White Witch and reverse the curse on Narnia. And the first sign, we've been thinking about signs a lot recently, the first sign of this was that the snow began to melt. Listen to this from the book. Every moment, the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. Every moment, more and more trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you looked, instead of white shapes, you saw the dark green of firs or the black prickly branches of bare oaks and beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down onto the forest floor and overhead you could see blue sky between the treetops. In Narnia, a great reversal was taking place. During the past couple of weeks, we've ventured through John chapter 9, and we've seen the beginnings of a great reversal. As Jesus, the light of the world, has ushered in a new reality, not just opening the eyes of the physically blind, but opening the eyes of those who are blind towards God. Shafts of light have entered into our world, banishing darkness. However, at the point we left things last week, things still looked pretty bleak and dark for the man born blind. Sure, he's had his sight restored by Jesus, and he's growing in his understanding of him, but he's lost everything else. He's lost his family, his community, his reputation. From his example, we learned how Christian discipleship means following in Jesus' footsteps. It means getting what he gets. But for the man born blind, they must have felt like pretty lonely steps. After all, Jesus, the only one who could have vindicated the man, went missing at verse 7 of this long chapter. And so the question we were left with last time was, why bother? If that's what's being a disciple of Jesus leads, if that's what it feels like, how on earth is it worth it? Well, the final installment of this story provides reasons for it. And those reasons revolve around who Jesus is, what he is like, and why he's come. In short summary, what we're shown here, and it's up on the screen, is that Jesus is the Son of Man, the ultimate judge, who comes from heaven to give the blind sight and to blind those who claim to see. And we're going to unpack that summary in three parts this morning. But we're also going to focus on our response to this and, and what it means for each and every one of us. So first, Jesus is the Son of Man, the ultimate judge who comes from heaven. 
What do you make of Jesus' question to the man born blind in verse 35? If you've got it there, have a look. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's the first thing that Jesus has said to the man since he told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Why the question? Why the title, the Son of Man? Well, Jesus has used that title of himself all the way through John's Gospel. However, you'll remember how he picks up on some of, um, how that phrase picks up on some of the Old Testament visions of the Son of Man. For example, it's linked to what Daniel witnessed in his vision given by the Lord. So in Daniel chapter 7, you don't need to turn there now, it'll be up on the screen, we read this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man figure in Daniel's vision acts as an intermediary between God and people, between God and mankind. He comes from heaven to reign over all peoples and all of creation. So when Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man to that man born blind, that's what he's picking up on. He is saying that he is the one sent from heaven, i.e. he's the divine son and the one who is also born of Mary, a human being. He's the one who's given all authority, glory, and sovereign power on earth because he possesses all authority, glory, and sovereign power from the Father in eternity. The point is, Jesus Christ reveals God to us. It is impossible for human beings to see God in himself. Yet in the Son of Man, the one sent from heaven, we see one who is God from God. Jesus says, verse 37, he is the one speaking with you. And because of that, of course, Jesus Christ is our real and rightful judge. He's the one everyone will stand before. And that little mock court uh, designed by the Pharisees throughout this whole chapter to bully the man born blind and his parents in their insecurity. Do you know what? It's nothing when you compare it to standing before the judge of all who possesses all authority, glory, and sovereign power. In the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the children first learn about Asman from uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And then it slips out that Aslan is actually a lion. Before that point, they didn't realize that. So Susan, one of the children, says, is, is, he, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. Daniel is not the only one who's given a vision of the reigning son of man. Just listen to this from John's vision. The person who wrote this gospel is given a vision of the ascended Christ in Revelation chapter 1. And he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. The lampstands represent all the churches. 
and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. He's dressed like a king. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. He is wise. His eyes were like blazing fire. He sees everything. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. He's strong enough to crush his enemies like you and I might crush an ant with our feet. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. He is strong and commanding. In his right hand, he held seven stars. He holds the churches in his possession. And coming out from his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His words have power, sovereign power. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. It's hard to see him in his glory. And so John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. John is rightly afraid. How can anyone stand in his presence? You know, Jesus Christ is no Barney the dinosaur. He is the awesome, powerful, and glorious Son of Man. But then we read this. Then he, that's the ascended Christ, placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He puts his hand on John. He speaks tenderly to him and offers an assurance as strong as his person. We see something of that in our passage too. In John chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus hears about the man born blind who's been cast out. He knows about his plight, and he goes to him. For his whole life, people must have walked by that man born blind as he sat begging in the shadows of the temple. Not even being noticed, but Jesus seeks and Jesus finds him. Again, by the way, this is the second time. Yet, not to kick him when he's down, or to tell him off for his lack of courage or strength, or to crush him, he speaks tenderly to him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's not a test. That's an invitation. When I say to my kids, do you like ice cream? I don't then follow that up well, with, um, well, too bad, because you're never going to get any. The question is designed to give. After seeking him out, Jesus is teaching him. He's helping him. The man has only ever heard Jesus' voice and felt a touch on his eyes. And yet now, Jesus gives the man another opportunity to grow in sight and understanding of him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then Jesus said, Lord, sir, sorry, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Seeing, not just with his eyes, something of what Daniel and John both saw in their God-given vision. The man worships Jesus. Isn't that the great miracle of John chapter 9? 
Isn't that what Jesus meant when he responded to his disciples' question about whose fault it was that the man was born blind? In verse 3, Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents. It's not their fault. Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the man isn't just given physical sight to go on his way, never to be seen of or heard again. He's given sight of true reality, sight of who he is, sight of who Jesus is. And isn't that exactly what we've seen in the man born blind as he progresses from seeing Jesus as just a man in verse 11 to a prophet, he says in verse 17, to one who is from God, verse 33, to the Son of Man, the sent one of God, verse 38, the uncreated light who gave life to all things. As he beholds Jesus, all of those other things he's lost, that whole experience with his neighbors, the experience with the Pharisees, his, everything else pales into insignificance because the Lord Jesus himself has come to find him. Jesus is the Son of Man, the ultimate judge who comes, to give, who comes from heaven to give the blind sight. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That question is asked to each one of us today, not just to those who are not yet Christians, though of course Jesus offers himself to you if you're not yet there. If, if that's the case, all you need to do is in verse 38, say to him, Lord, I believe, and worship him. Humbly submit to Jesus as the Lord of your life. He is worthy of it. And then perhaps read John chapter 10, the next chapter, where Jesus assures each and every one of his followers that he knows you, he loves you, he's, he loves you so much that he's laid down his life for you. And he'll lead you as a shepherd leads his sheep. But it's also a question offered to those who do belong to Jesus, who, um, who, like the blind man, don't yet see him in all his glory. Jesus wants us to see him more. Because the more we see him, the more our fears, our trials, the, the opposition we face, the darkness around us, all of those things lose their power and their grip on us. And the more we will just want to fall on our knees in joyful worship of him. Like the blind man, you don't have to go far to look for Jesus. You don't have to prove yourself before him. You don't have to reach a certain age of, or maturity to see him. Children amongst us, you know, you are not too young to see Jesus. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. He's already come to find you. And as you respond to him in faith and worship, you will see more and more and more of him. And know more and more and more of God as you are wrapped up in Christ in whom you live. But together with this wonderful invitation is a warning for those who don't think they need it. For Jesus is the Son of Man, the ultimate judge, who comes from heaven to give the blind sight and to blind those who claim to see.
Nicola and I have very much enjoyed um, the Amazon Prime, Amazon video show Clarkson's Farm. Um, in case you haven't heard about it, it's a documentary style show about Jeremy Clarkson who takes over the running of his farm near Chipping Norton um, after the farm manager retires. And it's a surprisingly fascinating, funny, and at times very poignant a show about life on a farm with absolutely brilliant characters from Caleb the tractor driver to Gerald the, the drywall builder to Ellen the shepherd. But one of the things that really struck me about the show is how dependent farmers are on conditions completely outside of their control. Doesn't matter how many bright ideas Clarkson has or how much money he spends on his equipment or how hard he and his team work. He cannot foresee extreme weather conditions. So no one predicted the, um, that the spring of 2020 last year would be the hottest since records began. And the result was that it devastated the crop for many, many farmers. It was a terrible year for farming. The lesson is, if you're tempted to become a farmer and you think you can see and predict the weather, you're foolish. Well, Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him um, who, who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, I'll wait for the plane to go. Extreme weather conditions. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees are incredulous that Jesus suggests they can't see what they think they can see. And we see that in their question, which, by the way, is the right one. But the fact that they ask it proves that they're blind. They think they already possess sight in themselves. They don't see the need for the light of Christ. And because of that, they don't receive it. In fact, they become more and more blind to the reality about Christ and the reality about themselves. And as the gospel progresses, where does that lead but to them putting Jesus on trial and putting him to death? Their story goes in the opposite direction to the man born blind. You know, in fact, both they and the man begin the story in spiritual darkness. The reason the man sees is because he knows he is blind in sin and he needs Christ. On the other hand, it is because the Pharisees thought of themselves as guiltless as those in the know, they don't see Jesus for who he really is. And they don't see and receive his grace. That disbelief and denial of him means their blindness and guilt and sin remain. Because they thought they were in the know, they couldn't see Jesus for, for who he is. On, on the other hand, it is because the man knew he was blind that he had the eyes to see. This is, what, um, one, this is how one writer puts it. He says, it is not the Pharisee's sin, but their rejection of grace that renders them lost. There is no cure for people who reject the only cure there is, and no hope for those who are wise in their own eyes. It's a stark warning, but again, how does this relate to us? 
One question to ask yourself is, who do you think that this message, this word from Jesus relates to? Who is Jesus speaking to here? Is it just the Pharisees, those silly religious leaders who thought they knew everything? Is it just for those outside the church who don't think they need Jesus? Is it just for those who irrationally think that anything is true or that nothing is true? Is it just for those leaders in the church who seem to be abandoning the authentic gospel of Christ? Well, yes, it may be for all of the above. But if you think that this word is only for them, it may well prove to be a word for you too. Me? But I'm an evangelical. Me? But I'm ordained. Me? I'm one of the good guys. In the words of the Apostle Paul, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It is only God who gives us sight by the light of Christ, which humbles us when we think we know everything. Here's an example very close to home, and I'm sorry that some of you um, missed part of the notice uh, earlier when the sound was down. But as we continue to emerge from lockdown as a church, each one of us will have different, even conflicting thoughts about what the appropriate mitigations, restrictions, uh, and, and the rate of change should be. It will be very tempting to condemn those who don't think like we do. From completely different perspectives, we could easily write one another off as being unkind, uncaring, irresponsible, unbiblical, unthoughtful. We can use those same words from multiple perspectives. And all that happens when we do that, when we label one another with those words, is conflict or shutting down conversation. It silences those who are too nervous to disagree. What does this teach us? Well, surely it teaches us that none of us can see without Christ. None of us possess the wisdom of God. By nature, we are all blind and stubborn. So in humility, we will need to try and understand each other, to listen to and love one another. In humility, we will need to assume the best of motives in one another. In humility, we will need to give others permission to ask the questions of us. That doesn't mean that everyone is right. In fact, challenge and disagreement can be a really good thing. We don't need to be scared of it. And actually, it may mean, as we humbly seek the Lord's will, that some of us change our minds about what is best. It may mean that some of us need to pray for patience with those who prefer gradual and measured change, and some of us need to pray for courage to step forward when things move beyond our control. All of us need to pray that we grow in love for God and of neighbor at this time. All of us need to remember that we do not possess perfect vision. All of us need to look to Christ like the man who couldn't see. With him, in verse 36, we need to say, tell me so that I may believe in him. Speak to me. Tell me more, Lord. And as in verse 38, we need to say, Lord, I believe. We need to turn our attention and direct our faith towards him not in anything else. Worshipping and adoring him, 
the one who has come to us from heaven, the Son of Man, the Word made flesh, who made his dwelling among us, whose glory we have now seen by faith, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's then, it's there that we really see. Amen. Thank you so much, Jake. What wonderful truths we have heard from God's word.